This message is brought to you by DoNotAge.org, the longevity research organisation that's on a mission to extend health span for as many people as possible via products that actually work. Start your journey today at DoNotAge.org and use code LAMA for a 10% discount. That's L-L-A-M-A. My grandmother had a stroke about 12 years ago, and she's been paralyzed since then, can't speak. But if I go and play guitar for her, like, she'll start kicking her leg or, like, trying to move along to what I'm doing. She'll just get a little smile, and it's, like, so meaningful to me. Hello and welcome to Llama, the Live Long and Master Aging podcast. I'm Peter Bowes. This is where we explore the science and stories behind human longevity. Well, today we're going to delve into the science behind memory, the mind and aging. My guest is Brandon Carone, currently a research assistant in the Memory and Lifespan Cognition Lab at UCLA, the University of California, Los Angeles. Also president of the Music Cognition Coalition at UCLA. Brandon, welcome to the Live Long and Master Aging podcast. Thank you so much. Now, we've uh, talked before, and just to a quick reminder, episode 72 is when we spoke to Carol Rosenstein, the co-founder of Music Men's Minds, which is a group that works with uh, elderly people, in many cases suffering from Parkinson's, Alzheimer's, other forms of dementia. And you've been involved with that group yourself for some time. Yeah, and so um, I met Carol about two years ago at UCLA. They were holding a music and mindfulness symposium, and I'm just really interested in music cognition. So I decided to go. And Carol was one of the speakers. Her and one of her assistants were presenting Music Men's Minds to us, and they were talking about volunteering and needing volunteers and trying to expand the program. And they were saying that they needed help in Santa Barbara. And I just happened to be doing summer school at UCSB that upcoming summer. And so after the symposium, I went up and spoke to her. We exchanged contact information, and I was a volunteer. And that next summer, I, when I lived there, I started a band for Music Men's Minds there, and it's still going today. Well, it's a really good group. I've been to one of the rehearsals, and uh, I was like, episode 72, if you want to take a listen, maybe even before you listen to the rest of this podcast, because it'll give you some really good background on how music is being used to, to help people to live better lives and to be, be more fulfilled and perhaps perhaps even reverse some of the symptoms of their conditions. It's, it's a really good group. We might talk a bit more about that, but uh, I want Brandon to talk about you and your upbringing. I think you've been a musician, it's fair to say, since the age of seven? Yes. I was always extremely fascinated by music. I remember sitting down in front of my mom's radio and just like listening to music for hours on end. And my grandfather was actually, he played accordion in a really amazing jazz group. And so going and hearing him play was always inspiring. And then I got my guitar at seven just completely immersed myself in trying to learn music and trying to learn different types of different genres of music and just different styles on guitar. And when I was in middle school, actually, we we were really fortunate to have an elective called Rock Band. So we had four drum sets, five guitar amps, two ginormous bass amps, and like eight to ten singers. And we would have this elective every single day where we would just learn and cover classic rock songs and uh, at the end of the quarter, at our little middle school, we had put on a little concert. And so we had performed these songs that we've been learning. And it was really amazing also because sometimes we would, we would play at really cool venues. Like we got to play at Disneyland. And how do you think that music has shaped your life in terms of your aspirations? Well, 
even after middle school, when I got to high school, I um, I joined the drumline. And so I was still playing guitar a lot, but I also joined drumline. And it was actually extremely competitive. We ended up going to national championships twice um, when I was there because we had three different three different uh, drum lines. It was like a Safrash, JV, and varsity, which is not normal at most high schools. But the varsity one would go to national championships every year, and I got to do that twice. And it was actually there um, on the plane ride back from Dayton, Ohio, which was an interesting place to have, <laughs> to have national championships. On the plane ride back, I was listening to an album, and it's something I hadn't listened to a lot, but it was one of my favorite albums a long time ago. And it just brought back all these emotions and memories that I had associated with the songs. And I was just trying to figure out why, like how it does that. And that was like the real moment that I realized like, wow, this is really interesting. And I, I think I want to go into this. Interesting. So that is the first, that's the first time that you managed to make some sort of correlation between emotion and how it is inspired or those feelings are inspired by music. Yeah. And so you've essentially made a career of it, or at least you're a, at the beginning of <laughs> yeah. a career. So I'm working on it. What, how did you determine in terms of your, your studies how to try to delve into that a little bit more deeper? Well, in my first year, I actually um, I was a chemistry major at UCLA, and I really didn't enjoy it. Um, I was kind of dreading all my classes, and I just wasn't enjoying the stuff I was learning. And I decided to switch to cognitive science, which is something I think I definitely, <laughs> like, I'm extremely glad I did that. And after I did that, I started looking more into music cognition because that's that's really what I wanted to go into. I've always been interested in cognitive science and neuroscience and psychology. My I have three older sisters, and two of them were really interested in psychology, so that kind of impacted me as well, um, just hearing them talk about it and cognition overall. So let's talk about the lab that you work in now. And I mentioned at the beginning, Memory and Lifespan Cognition Lab. Yeah. What do you do in that? So a lot of the studies that we're doing are, it's examining memory. And so we'll do the studies with a bunch of UCLA students. And then we'll also do it with um, citizens 65 years and older. And so what we do is we compare the we compare the results to see how people remember things differently and how they prioritize things differently. So a lot of the times what like the kind of trend that we see is that um, younger adults are able to remember more information, but older adults are better at remembering the important information. So it's it's pretty interesting stuff that we do in there. I so really there's like a, a filtering process that older people are better at? Yeah. And they can prioritize what they need to... Is that a prioritization of what they need to learn because they maybe subconsciously know that their capacity to remember things is limited and therefore they will prioritize those very important things? Well, I think that maybe for younger adults, we're kind of we think that we could remember more. So we try to just do all the important things. And then the older adults may, like what you said, um, may have a better idea of what they may actually be capable of. And of course, most of this, all of this, I, I assume is, is pretty subconscious that yeah. we're not thinking about our capacity to remember. It just happens. Yeah. So how easy is it to get people, especially the older adults that you work with, to, to actually get people to come forward and take part in your studies. I, I imagine that's quite a, a significant time commitment for people. Definitely, yeah. So with the younger adults, it's much different because we just give them class credit. So like <laughs> usually if they're, in a, if, if they're in a psychology class or one of the psychology electives, um, they'll either give them mandatory research hours, well, they'll, have, well, they'll have to go in and complete research studies, or they'll give them 
extra credit for doing it just to like kind of give back to the research you know but um with the older adults it's much harder um we do a lot more studies at a time with them also because usually when the younger adults come in we'll give them one or two of our experiments and that's like 30 minutes to an hour whereas with the older adults it's usually two to two and a half hours because we're giving them so many more and it's because we aren't able to recruit as many older adults as we are younger adults and is it a do you think for those older adults taking part is it a fulfilling experience i mean i I guess in itself it is a an exercise in, in using the brain yeah i think some of them get frustrated sometimes because we can't just directly give them their results and also a lot of the a lot of the experiments are really challenging because we're trying to really test like how well people can remember things and like sometimes it's really specific and I can definitely see frustration in both younger and older adults but um, I think they like it. I think they like coming in and getting that experience and a lot of people are actually, a lot of them were researchers themselves and so they'll come in and talk to us about the research and ask a lot of questions and it's nice to talk to them about it. And I guess something that might be on the minds of those people and it it certainly would be from my perspective that you go into a study or to to help with a study like this but you know what it's about. You might have some preconceived ideas about how you're doing with your memory and if you're getting to 50, 60, 70 years old you're very familiar with those memory lapses which may be part of ordinary life which may be pretty normal but I think concern a lot of people that they think they're at the beginning of something some sort of cognitive decline yeah and I think um, a lot of times they'll come in really confident and then they'll do a few of the studies and get (laughs) really um, like I said frustrated but we just have to tell them like you know these are really hard tests like it's supposed to be hard. You're not supposed to be able to remember all the things, so don't worry about it. Um, and like we said, they are better at remembering the more important parts of the studies. So, Are you reaching any conclusions about memory as, as we age and perhaps any tips to help people with those, those moments, those senior moments as they describe them? In research, we found, not our research, but we, we know that every 10 years we lose about 10% of our dopamine and that is what helps us to remember things. And so it's it's completely natural. Like, it, you may just feel like, oh, man, I'm getting old, you know. Like, I can't remember the things that I used to be able to remember. But it's completely natural. And if you're able to prioritize the things that are most important, I think that that's more important than remembering more things overall. So let's talk about these very specific conditions that I know you've you've encountered, especially with the, the Music Men's Minds groups. And yeah. I mentioned Parkinson's, Alzheimer's, there are a range of different dementias. Yeah. In terms of Alzheimer's, clearly we know that there is no cure. Yeah, we don't. We we're beginning to understand a lot about what causes that condition. But I mean, correct me if I'm wrong. But we're really not in sight of any significant cure yet. Yeah, not at all. It's so, what is what have your studies in terms of your understanding? What have your studies helped with? And can you see light at the end of that tunnel? Yeah, definitely. I mean, just working with music men's minds, I can see what a huge impact it has on these people with Alzheimer's, and um, just seeing them go to the rehearsals and still be able to sing songs that are from the 60s, 70s, even 50s, you know? It shows that they still have those memories, and you can definitely see how much happier it makes them. Sometimes when they can't even remember their children's names, they could still remember the lyrics to songs, or they could still remember how to play a song that they used to play. And so that allows them to feel like themselves again, you know? When they remember the memories that they have associated with the songs, it takes them back 
to their autobiographical memories. And so they kind of get another, they get a better sense of identity with that. And I think it's really special for them. And what's happening when they manage to retrieve those memories? Some people talk about muscle memory. Mm -hmm. Uh, Can you explain that to me? What is muscle memory as opposed to, I suppose, brain memory? And we'll continue this conversation in just a moment. Hey, quick question for you. Are you someone who wants to be fit, healthy, and happy? And what if I told you you could get your dream body by simply just listening to a podcast? I'm Josh. And I'm KG, and we're the hosts of the Fit, Healthy, and Happy podcast. Listen, we get it. Fitness isn't easy. Carbs, no carbs. Just stop, okay? It doesn't have to be that complicated. And that's why we made this podcast. We get straight to the facts so you can become your best you. So the way to check us out is click the link in the show notes or search Fit, Healthy, and Happy podcast on any of the major podcast platforms. We'll see you soon. What they've found is in people with Alzheimer's disease, even if they can't remember certain melodic content of the songs, they're still able to remember how to play their instrument. And I think that what that is, is there's there are different types of musical memories. And so there's implicit musical memory, which is like playing your instrument. And then there's um, explicit memory, which is like recognition of familiar and unfamiliar melodical content. And so it seems as though they never lose that implicit memory of playing their instrument. But we don't know why. We don't know how that's happening. And we don't know how it could benefit them to its fullest potential. But that's one of the things I'm really interested in. And the anecdotal evidence, and I've seen it for myself, and of course, you've seen it frequently, the anecdotal evidence there is is quite overwhelming. And especially how it seems to improve the mood, just the general mood of these people, just the experience of being around music yeah and like there are also a lot of studies with music therapy like aside from them just playing their instruments a lot of people who just go through music therapy find great um, improvements in their mood and anxiety depression um, coping with anger management or coping with anger and like helping with anger management and there's something about the way that music memory is stored as opposed to other kinds of memories that's significant Exactly. And we don't know where. We don't know how it's stored. We don't know why it's not affected by these neurodegenerative memories. And I think it's hugely interesting. That's why I want to go into this, you know? Yeah. And there is so much more to learn, isn't there? There is. Yeah. And, you know, I'm talking about all these different research studies that have been conducted, but compared to other things that are other things in health that have research, like there is not much research on this at all. And so it's really interesting that it's kind of just becoming huge. It's been studied since like the 60s and 70s, I think, but not nearly as much as most other things in health. And something else that was striking to me is how music allows people who are unable to speak or perhaps have very little ability to speak can still express themselves in a very outgoing sort of way and and that is a tool that they wouldn't otherwise have and and must be i assume nurtured yeah definitely i actually um i brought in a quote there's a a guy named stephen gibbs there was a huffington post article about him and he developed aphasia which is the loss of ability to understand or express speech caused by brain damage so this is his quote he said The repetitive nature of rhythm and melody and their form are very helpful for people struggling to make communicative sense. It is about fluency. The other thing is, music crosses the boundaries of the brain's hemispheres, left and right. It is mathematical and affective. 
It is structured and emotional. It is language and poetry. It is an important part of our emotional and spiritual being. When words fail, music is there. And then this is later in the article. Most of my musical skills were intact, thankfully. I had no paralysis, my brain was fine, and my limbs were quite functional. But I had dyspraxia, too. I couldn't form the words that I intended to use. My music therapist, Andrea Robinson's exercise, improved my formation of syllables in a musical way, pitch and rhythm. About two to three months on, I couldn't speak my address. It was mumbo-jumbo, literally. But Andrea set my address to music, and lo and behold, I could sing it. It was much easier to sing than speak. My fluency was much better. It is the opposite of learning to sing. Usually for singing, we speak, then engage rhythm, and then melody. My talking has improved, but my singing is still better. Oh, that's amazing. Yeah. And, and the one word that you use there, mathematical, mm-hmm. that there is, if you like, a formula, or maybe we don't understand it yet, but it seems as if there is a, a very tangible formula to this, which uh, hopefully when it is fully understood can then be used for positive effect. Definitely. We can understand what the end result is. Well, maybe we can affect the cause. Yeah, and now we're, you know, there's so much more technology for brain imaging and we found that musicians who started at a young age actually develop a more dense corpus callosum, which is, it's a, a large nerve tract in the center of the brain that connects the left and right hemispheres. And because music involves so many different parts of the brain, it's constantly using the corpus callosum to integrate those different brain regions. And it be- literally becomes more dense. And so I think that like after seeing the positive effects later in life, like you could definitely see that it's affecting you early on in life too. And so I always encourage learning an instrument at a young age, at any age, it's helpful. Yeah, and that's really interesting because I think there might be a perception that this is an intervention for older people, perhaps older people who are already in the throes of of suffering from one of these uh, dementia conditions. But as you say... To And I think this applies to a lot of the interventions to maybe slow down the aging process or, or simply to age better. That The earlier you start it, the more positive the results are going to be. Definitely. And there are still like huge effects on those who haven't ever played an instrument in their life. You know, um, we have a band called the Beverly Hills Treblemakers and they rehearse every week on Tuesday. And it's a group of usually 80 to 100 people. They have a few musicians at the front playing and singing and then everybody else in the audience is just singing along and you could just see what a huge impact it's had on them it's only been going for a year now but it it was at 80 to 90 people within half a year and who are these people just people from beverly hills yeah same just a cross-section of society yeah not necessarily suffering from any condition most of them are but i think a lot of people just go to enjoy it also right so it's really nice and how would you describe the mood in that room it's huge. <laughs> they have um, they have guest musicians come in sometimes and perform also. So it's really nice for them to like get that concert vibe, you know. And so, I think like it's it's so easy to tell that they all enjoy it, and you know, to have that many people coming back every week, it shows how how great it is for them. Just going off at a little tangent, I've I've heard quite a lot about pre-birth memories and music. Mm-hmm. Is there a correlation? Yeah. So one of my I think this is one of the most interesting studies I've found, but um, what researchers did in this study is they had 
women play Twinkle Twinkle Little Star during the last trimester of their pregnancy five times a week. And after they were born, they had so they had a control group that was not getting any exposure to Twinkle Twinkle Little Star. And then they had the group that would get it five times a week in the last trimester. And so after the the babies were born, they tested the, their brain responses to the songs at birth and then four months after the birth. And so they found that those who had exposure to it had larger responses when they were hearing the songs again than those who didn't have any exposure. And when you say responses, how would you measure that? So they're called um, ERPs, and what they do is they they measure responses in the brain regarding sensory, cognitive, and motor events. And so they found that when they compared to a control group that was not exposed to the song in the past, they found that both at birth and at the age of four months, infants in the learning group had stronger responses to the unchanged notes. So they, they had um, two different melodies as well. So they had one where it was Twinkle, Twinkle, Little Star with three or four of the notes changed. And even with that small amount of notes changed, they had larger responses to what they had actually heard previously. Because they're getting this... Um, they're, they're building these neural representations in the womb, which is extremely interesting. And it's, it's lasting for months because four months after, it still shows. Well, I was going to say, that being the point of this, presumably, that uh, if uh, some sort of intervention like that, and as simple as playing a, a song to a, an unborn child, yeah. can have beneficial results in, in early childhood, which mm-hmm. I, I assume the theory, therefore, is that there could be a potentially positive knock-on effect with the learning process, learning maybe speech, other functional activities yeah, of and a toddler. Even crying patterns, they've found that um, babies mimic their mother's speaking patterns through their crying once they're born. That's that's crazy, you know, just just hearing your mother speak in the womb, like you develop, you, you try to mimic it in your patterns. So maybe the takeaway from, from all of this is that the more activity that will stimulate the brain from a very, very early age seems to be potentially positive as, as we grow older. Uh, yeah, I believe so. Hmm. You're probably one of the youngest guests I've had on this <laughs> podcast. Uh, what what age are you? I'm 21. To what extent do you think about your own longevity? I think I probably think about it way more than most people my age. Especially, I you might. yeah, especially working, you know, working and studying this stuff um, in my lab, which is you know memory lab for older adults and younger adults, and then with music men's minds, which is. The working with people with Alzheimer's, dementia, Parkinson's, TBI, stroke, and just anything, you know, definitely makes me think about it a lot more. And I think it make, it encourages me a lot because, like I've said, there's just not enough research on it for how how we could be utilizing it. Just seeing the effects in my own experiences, like, I could definitely tell how great it is for these people to have these experiences. And like you were saying, if like if we could develop a formula to actually, you know, really keep people aging in place. That would be amazing. That does seem to be the key point to me, that anecdotal evidence is fine, but in the long run, and it's nice, and it seems to be very positive evidence, it doesn't really move us forward too much. You, and this is goes to the heart of what you and others are doing, and that is to try to, to pinpoint exactly what is happening so that yeah. that can be applied to, to other people and people can be educated about what could be potentially positive for them especially if it involves music. Definitely. And I think it's a really sad reason, but I think that one of the biggest reasons that there's not much research in it yet is because it's not pharma. 
you know you don't you don't have to pay a lot of money to get music whereas like with pharma you just it's huge amounts of money for research they're they get billions of dollars and with music it's free you know you're, you're playing an instrument or you're listening to your own music it's free you've detected that reluctance of medical entities to put money into this kind of research because there isn't perhaps too much in it for them i believe so and i think that um like you could see there nih is developing more um more funding for that type of artistic um, and creative research but that's the national institutes of health yes yes and so that's really exciting i think seeing that i just i just actually found that a few weeks ago um that's really inspiring to me because you know (laughs) that's directly what i want to go into and so like realizing that there is more funding being provided now than before it's it's really encouraging so you do think about your longevity do you have aspirations as far as your own long-term health is concerned well i think that music isn't (laughs) i was going to say music isn't my career it kind of is but playing an instrument isn't my career but i still spend hours every single week doing it and it just when i go and play my guitar it just completely takes me away from everything de-stresses me like nothing else even even just listening to music you know like if i'm feeling down or not feeling great i could just put on a song that I like, you know, and it just instantly boosts my mood. And so, and, and the fascinating thing is, we all know that because we all do it. Yeah, it's crazy, and that, that's what I love. You know, every like when I talk about this stuff, everybody can kind of relate to it, and it makes it much easier to explain than like the actual neuroscience behind it. You know, like remember when you used to listen to this song in middle school, and then like it's like, oh yeah, and you play it, and it brings back those memories, and it's just like, it's nice for everybody everybody to have a connection to it, and to be able to understand. And I think something that's really interesting about Music Men's Minds is that most people also have a connection to that. Because, you know, it's so common, Alzheimer's, dementia, and Parkinson's are so common nowadays that everybody can kind of relate, you know, almost everybody has a connection to it within family or a friend. It's it's interesting. So the aspiration, as far as you're concerned, is to continue to have a life that involves music. Yeah, and I, my biggest aspirations are just to find ways to help people. I've thought about doing a lot of other things, being a lawyer and doctor. Doctor would still be helping, of course, but I think that just because this is kind of untapped in depth, it's kind of untapped, that really encourages me to go into it. Because, I, like I've said, I, I think that there are so many unique ways that this could help people and it's really just like we don't know what we can do with it yet and i think what's interesting is that and you talked about the, the financial side of perhaps the reluctance of bigger organizations to put a lot of money into this of course there is a, a, a fiscal aspect to this in that these conditions and these diseases cost a huge amount of money in terms of the care of people in the latter years of their lives and Definitely. It, i suppose the challenge is to get across that potential saving or at least how that money can be re-diverted into other aspects of care and and research and science Mm -hmm. whereas at the moment it's a kind of dealing with the problem once it's happened whereas the the real issue is what should have been done and what could be done 10 20 30 50 years beforehand exactly yeah and i think um you know sometimes i'll just talk to carol about the the meds that she has her husband taking and it's crazy the amount of money that it costs for these people to just try to live their lives you know and it's really sad 
that some people can't afford those. And they just won't be getting the same experience at the end of their life as others would. It's just a huge difference between seeing people on their meds and then seeing people playing their instrument and how it affects them. And I suppose one of the problems is that cost aside, giving people meds is so easy. Yeah, definitely. When you, 21 years old, when you think about aging, at your age, most people, the response I get is that I actually don't think about aging in my early 20s. Do you, and you've got a different perspective because of the work that you do, but the students your age around you all of the time, do you sense that, that there isn't really much thought given to the aging process at such a young age? Definitely. And I don't think much thought is given to these diseases with people my age much either. Um, There's some really great groups at UCLA doing stuff for these diseases, but I think in general, people my age don't really think about it. And and why is that, do you think? I think they don't want to. Most people think that when you get when you're getting to the end of your life, like it's kind of the end. You know, I, I don't think of it that way. I think that you should try and enjoy every every bit of life that you get, you know? And that's another reason I'm so interested in this. Like I love seeing the way that it affects the people that I work with and I love I love getting that experience with them. And I think another thing that encourages me so much is just, like, the people in my family. Like, my my grandmother had a stroke about 12 years ago, and she's she's been paralyzed since then, can't speak. But if I go and play guitar for her, like, she'll start kicking her leg or, like, you know, trying to move along to what I'm doing. And I'll, she'll just get a little smile, and it's, like, so meaningful to me. And even with my parents, you know, like, I want to do anything I can to make sure that people can just enjoy life for as long as they can. When I was talking to Carol, Carol Rosenstein, we were talking about the different pillars that go into a a healthy lifestyle. The obvious ones, your diet, your exercise regime, the amount of sleep that you get. And then Carol said, well, maybe music should be another one of those pillars, the things that we give equal prominence to, to to getting out and doing a long walk or a run or eating a Mediterranean diet as opposed to too much fatty meat or whatever your diet of choice is. And I think she's onto something. And and you've reflected that as well, that music could be such a, a vital part of our everyday lives that could ultimately pay dividends in our older age. <laughs> I think it's interesting that you bring that up because I think people already do. You know, like you walk around and you see people <laughs> with AirPods everywhere, you know, just walking around, walking to work, at the gym. It's just part of life. Like that's it's just what we're used to. And it's been a part of life since the beginning of what we know, you know. And so it's been it's in every culture, everybody has that association with it. And I think most people love music. So we're already, maybe without thinking about it or understanding why, we're embracing that idea. Yeah. And I suppose maybe the message from your work is that we should just embrace it a bit more. Yeah. I think we should embrace it in health, not just as a pastime or something that we do to feel better, you know. We've talked about longevity. We've talked about your ideas of growing older. Do you have a, maybe moving away from your area of speciality, do you have a goal in mind in terms of your life? Are you one of these people who will do everything you can possibly think of and look at the research and and try to to get the exercise right and the the diet right and and all of the other components to live to a ripe old age of maybe 90 or 100? Or don't you think about that? I think... (laughs) And I 
say that because I know you are surrounded by people in that age group. Mm-hmm. Th- those are the people that you're, you're working with and you're very close to. So I think my biggest struggle right now is just getting enough sleep. I definitely don't get enough sleep. And I've been, I've been trying to fix my diet. But yeah, I think, <laughs> I think that I've been thinking about it more, definitely more since I started working with Music Men's Minds. And yeah, I've been trying to better myself. And you don't get enough sleep because you're working too hard. Yeah. Or maybe so. playing the guitar too late. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> but hey, I would... Well, that's doing you good. Yeah, I think if, you know, it's 15 to 30 minutes of, like, really, really relaxing and stress-free time, I think that I would sacrifice the sleep for that. <laughs> and maybe it's better. Yeah, I'm not sure if it is. Who knows? Maybe. Uh, Look, Brandy, you're doing really fascinating work, and I wish you all the best with it. Thank you very much. If anyone is interested in actually following the work that you're doing and the work of your lab, um, is there somewhere they can go online? Um, Yeah, so um, we have a... If you want to look up my lab, you could look up Alan Castell Memory and Lifespan Cognition Lab at UCLA. And if you want to look into the the Music Men's Minds group, you could just type in musicmensminds.org, and it'll take you to our website. Excellent. Well, I will also share those details in the show notes for this podcast. Awesome. Thank you very much indeed. And just a quick reminder that we are in social media at Llama Podcast. The website is uh, llamapodcast.com. Llama being live long and master aging. We'd really appreciate it if you could go to Apple Podcasts. You can review us. You can rate us there. And wherever you find us, thank you for listening. FlexBeam is a portable red light therapy device that's now being used by leading athletes, including the Norwegian tennis player Kasper Rud. Whenever you put the FlexBeam on, you feel it starts to work right away. I need something that can help repair all the fibres that I have broken in the surfs. The infrared lights penetrate your skin and makes the muscle tissue recover faster. FlexBeam, I keep it with me all the time. Recharge Health is offering Llama Podcast listeners an $80 discount on the purchase of a FlexBeam device. Go to the website recharge.health and use the code LLAMA at checkout. That's L-L-A-M-A. You'll also find the link in the show notes for this episode.